Good morning. This morning we're reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Jeff McMullen, as Brian introduced me, and it's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, As Brian said, I'm a pastor at Chapelgate, and I'm also the director of the Life Counseling Center. Um, More importantly, I'm married. I've been married to my wife, Jody for 23 years. Unfortunately, she couldn't come today. We have um, a a son in college. She had to make sure to get out the door from a spring break. Um, But I have three children. Uh, Ewan is 19. He's a freshman in college. Um, I have a daughter, Liesl, who's 17 and is a junior in high school. And Nolan, who is 13 and in seventh grade. So uh, we're busy, um, but grateful. And in my free time, I I work at Life Counseling Center. I oversee a team of... uh, Seven, seven part-time counselors, one full-time counselor, an intern, and a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, that's basically what it feels like. We, we, we serve this, this geographical area as well as those outside of uh, the uh, Baltimore-Washington area with counseling that's Christ-centered, relationship-based, and professionally competent. We want Jesus to be the center of what we do in our counseling. And when people come in to talk about their struggles, we want them to meet the wonderful counselor. And we do it in the context of relationship. There's a lot of great techniques out there in this world um, that help with the, the counseling process. But we believe the most effective one is one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And we really do believe in having a good awareness of what is happening in the larger counseling world to help inform as well our counseling, but also say, this is what the scriptures look like as the basis for walking through change in the midst of suffering. We offer marriage counseling, individual counseling, we, we, we counsel children, we have support groups, we have a, for example, we have a domestic abuse support group that runs regularly. We offer seminars and webinars um, that are often free online. I just did one on depression uh, last month. We've done them on anxiety, parenting, and we're actually gonna have one coming up May 9th, which is on uh, what makes a good marriage. So feel free to join us for those. That will be a webinar online. Some ways you can partner with us. We need prayer. Uh, We are entering into the sensitive and often shameful places of people's lives. Would you pray for us? 
Would you pray for us as counselors that we would have wisdom, we would have faith, that we would have hope in Jesus' power to help heal as we're talking to those that we're walking alongside. And we're a nonprofit organization. Um, Though people pay a fee for service, uh, our overhead expenses exceed how much we bring in through appointments. So we have to raise additional funding. If you want to know more about that and how you might partner with us, I'm more than happy to talk with you after the service. This morning, we're going to talk uh, about a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 that we just read. And 1 Thessalonians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And Paul writes this letter to bring hope to a church that's facing ongoing persecution and to encourage them to walk with Christ in a way that is pleasing to him as they wait for the return of the Lord. And in our passage today, Paul is seeking to help bring hope to this church who is hurting. They are hurting. They are in the midst of grief because of those they know who have experienced death. And they're wondering how to make sense of it. And as we begin today, would you pray with me as we start our time together? Our Father... I want to thank you as we sang, you are the one who set us free. I want to thank you that the resurrection is true and that new life is for us who have put our faith in you. Spirit, would you speak to our hearts today? May we see you, Jesus. May we fall more in love with you. Maybe that'll be for the first time for some of us. And maybe that's for the, for the hundredth time you would just deepen that love that you've given us. And, um, yeah, I do pray that you move me out of the way so that people and and myself would hear you. And we pray that in your name. Amen. Uh, People come to counseling for a variety of reasons and problems. One thing I've come to realize is that every person's story and problems are different. But most people come to counseling to address a couple of key foundational questions like, What do I do with the pain that I'm currently feeling? And then there's a follow-up question. This is usually not spoken. What do I do to make it go away? And I actually think these are questions we are all trying to subconsciously answer on a daily basis. And there's four common ways I think we all try to do this. We do this by numbing, by controlling, by avoiding, or escaping the pain that we might be facing. We try to numb our pain by eating, drinking, and spending too much, to name a few. We will look to anything to dull our hearts. We can also seek to control what we are feeling by suppression of our pain. We might, it may act its way out in excessively cleaning our house in order to give us a sense of control by uh, control of our inner world by controlling our outer world. Or we might ruminate obsessively about what we are feeling in order to understand our pain, and we hope that if we can get to the bottom of it, we'll be done with it once and for all. Others of us seek to avoid painful emotions through denial, 
or blaming others for the pain we are feeling. We might also seek to escape from the painful realities that we're facing by overly indulging in video games or McDonald's at 10 p.m. or fantasy football. All these things we're facing don't really address the experience of what we are dealing with. I know for myself, you know, here I am a counselor, I know the ways that we deal with pain in our lives, but I love to run to numb myself from what I'm experiencing internally. When I feel the pressures of my job working, pushing in on me, I want some relief from that. So what do I do? I turn to the wonderful and at the same time unhealthy world of overly processed food and can eat one too many double-stuffed Oreo cookies. And I'm not joking about that. And for a brief moment, my negative feelings lessen as the dopamine levels spike and my nervous system numbs, only for a couple minutes later to be feeling a lot worse after the sugar crash and shaking my head saying, why did I do that? And in our passage today, Paul is seeking to help a church facing intense persecution and grief over the death of fellow believers in their community by offering them hope in an unlikely place and the return of Christ. Paul instructs the church that whether a believer is alive or dead, they will be with Christ when he returns in order that the church may find comfort and they in turn might comfort one another in the midst of their current sufferings and losses. And Paul explains about the return of Christ in order to provide tangible hope for a church that is currently suffering and wrestling with theological questions about those who they lost. Now, I know you and I might not be suffering persecution for our faith or having burning theological questions about those we lost, but each of us, to varying degrees and in different forms, are facing suffering and loss in our lives. Some of us are living with debilitating chronic pain, and it's been going on for years, and there seems to be no end in sight. For other of us, we're in a rocky relationship with someone we loved. Maybe it's really close to us, like a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it is a friend. Maybe it's a parent. And it causes us heartache. And for some of us, just even as we prayed, that we just might be grieving someone that we've lost, that we love, and we miss them so much. Their presence, not being here, is a huge void. Then others of us are are grappling with a loss of a dream. Some of us have a bondage to an addiction. Sometimes some of us are facing betrayal and a friendship. But whatever loss, whatever suffering that is causing a hole in your heart, it can be really hard to wait for the return to Jesus. For the return of Jesus. This morning, there's some great hope in this passage. Whatever suffering or loss we are currently facing, let's encourage one another that Jesus is returning soon. What does this encouragement mean? 
How do we encourage one another? Well, there's two points we're going to see from the passage. One first, we need to remind each other of Jesus' resurrection. And two, we need to remind each other that one day, you and I are going to always be with Jesus. We're going to remind each other of the resurrection. In this passage, Paul responds to this important question facing the Thessalonian church. What will happen to those believers who have already died when Jesus returns? Paul explains to the church that the believers who have died will rise up from their graves and join those who are presently alive. And together, those who are alive and dead will be brought to Jesus by God. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that the resurrection of the dead hinges on what they already know and have experienced. Jesus died and rose again. Christ's resurrection is the turning point of all of history. The narrative plot line of life has been changed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Death has been destroyed. And immortality has been granted to us who put our faith in Christ. Christ's resurrection assures us, his believers, that and those who have died, that they will rise from the dead when Jesus returns. And Paul holds out to this revolutionary reality that is underway. Why? To bring hope to a church that is stuck and hurting in a painful existence of persecution and loss. Growing up, I had really bad teeth. I had buck teeth, in fact. And that reality did not get by my neighborhood friends who effectually gave me the name of Bucky the Beaver. Yeah, that's right. And as you can imagine, being, having these buck teeth wasn't the most motivating way for me to smile. My parents knew my teeth were messed up, they made, they made me insecure, and they paid a lot of money to help me have the straight teeth I have now. Even after all of these years, even though I look at my teeth each and every day, and I know with my brain, have seen with my eyes, and touched with my hands that my teeth have been fundamentally changed forever into straight teeth, it is hard for me to believe at times that this is my new reality. I still struggle, my wife says this all the time, could you smile please in a picture? I still struggle to smile. I don't want my teeth to be seen. It's hard to let go of the old narrative of being Bucky the Beaver. When we are grieving a loss or hurting over something we have done or has been done to us, it's a lot easier to know in our heads that God has fundamentally changed our lives by his death and resurrection than to believe in our hearts that this really changes anything about me and my life and what I'm suffering. There is a war that is happening. It is hard to let go of the narrative that suffering and loss defines me more than the new life I have in Christ. It is a real struggle. This morning, 
I'm asking you to do a little work with me in your own heart. And I want you to take a moment and think about yourself and the narratives of suffering and loss you're personally having difficulty of letting go. How have these losses taken up residency in your soul and shaped the way you look at yourself and others? How is your pain skewing the way you look at your new identity in Christ? Even though you know Jesus has died for your sins and rose again, so you may become a part of his family. As real as our pain might be, as overwhelming our loss may feel, the new reality is that Christ's death and resurrection has ushered into our lives a promise that this pain won't be the final voice we hear. Your grief doesn't have the final say. Your loss is not the definitive status you experience. Death isn't the final end for any of us. Hope, glory, and eternal life is ours. Because you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't numb. He didn't control. He didn't avoid or escape the pain of sin and death. Jesus, the man of sorrows, moved towards us in our pain. He looked death in the eye and joyfully went to the cross and willingly bared the pain of our sin in order that we might be welcomed into his family so we might always be with him. We are his new creation people. And that's really good news. One of the things that sticks out to me about this passage is that Paul is addressing a church community. He is calling God's people in Thessalonica to be instruments of encouragement to one another who are facing loss and pain of their own. And as God's people, we are to encourage one another in the midst of our pain. Well, how can we do this? Well, part of us encouraging one another is reminding each other that though the pain, grief, and loss we are currently facing is real, is difficult, it is, can be downright horrible and evil at times, it's nothing compared to the glory, the healing that awaits us when Christ returns, when death is no more when tears and sorrow cease. Practically, what does this mean for you and I? I think this means we take seriously pain and loss one another is facing. We don't have to seek to fix it. We don't have to minimize it. We don't have to excuse it. We can empathize with our loved one and where he or she is at and be curious about what it's like to be in their shoes. We can be compassionate about the pain they're experiencing and be moved to do something about it. At the same time, we can encourage one another 
to turn to the resurrected Christ they belong to in the midst of their suffering. This might be done by sharing a scripture passage. This might be done by praying for each other. It might mean regularly praying and and meeting with each other over coffee. There's a million different ways we can do this for one another. But God wants to use you and me, people in pain, to help others who are struggling because we have a great hope in Jesus. Encouragement not only comes from reminding each other of the resurrection, it also comes as we remind each other that one day we're going to always be with Jesus. In verses 16 to 17, Paul uses language in order to describe the return of Christ. That might seem kind of weird to us um, as modern readers who tend to read the scripture in a very scientific way. If you're investigating Christ or you've never read this passage before, it might seem a bit odd what Paul is describing here about the return of Christ. There is no doubt that Jesus is coming back and setting straight all that is broken and unjust in our world. There is no doubt we as believers in Christ, whether alive or dead, will be resurrected from the dead and be with him forever. But what exactly this looks like and specifically how this is going to happen, it doesn't seem to be the point of what Paul is getting at here. N.T. Wright makes this helpful analogy in how we can understand this passage. By asking his readers, how would we describe a specific color to a blind person? In order to describe a color to a blind person, we would need to translate the color, let's just say, for example, uh, red, into a context that a blind person would understand. Wright points out we might talk about the color red in the terms of touch. The color red might represent a hard object like a kid's building block. Or we might describe the color as a sound. Maybe red would represent a loud sound like uh, a siren. But as hard as we try to accurately describe what the color looks like by a touch or by sound to someone who is blind, the description will ultimately come up and will ultimately be inadequate and describing what the color actually looks like. Instead of this passage giving the church a blow-by-blow description of what is going to occur at the return of Christ, Paul is seeking to give a suffering and grieving church hope by describing the return of Christ being like a government official coming on an official visit to the city. Scholars tell us that an official visit by a government leader to a city was a really big event in the ancient world. Festivities celebrating the arrival of the leader uh, were, were planned. So they would throw extravagant banquets, they would have games, they would unveil statues, there would be speeches praising the guest of honor, and the list goes on. And as the visitor, the visiting leader, is on his way into the city with all the, the pomp and pageantry, the the dignitaries from that home city would go out and meet the visiting leader and accompany him the rest of the way on the journey into the city. When Christ returns, Paul tells us it's going to be an event. It's going to be loud. 
There's going to be a cry of a command, a voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet gathering and summoning the dead in Christ to come meet Jesus. And second, those who are alive in Christ will be snatched up along with those who are dead in Christ, and they will go up, we will go up, and greet our elder brother Jesus in the clouds. And the clouds represent both the meeting place of God and his people, as well as where God's glory is displayed. We are going to be in the presence of God's glory all together. And third, it is going to be the final chapter of our lives. It dis- this passage describes how our story is going to finish. I love how F.F. Bruce A theologian calls this the climax of blessedness. As Paul says in the second half of verse 17, we are always going to be with the Lord. We are always going to be with the Lord. Our lives will end with being made whole and in perfect relationship with God and those around us who follow Jesus, and we will always be with the Lord. When folks start to make progress in counseling, it's really good to stop and acknowledge how far they've come. And sometimes when we stop to acknowledge the growth that's happened in somebody that we're counseling, I have found folks say something along the lines of this to me. Jeff, I know we have made some progress and I'm thankful, but if I'm really honest, I just want my hurt to go away, I want my anxiety to evaporate, I want my husband to make even more progress than he already has done. I want my depression to cease. I want my child to change. I want to be different. And you know, I don't blame them. I struggle with the same thing. I want closure. I want wholeness. There is something that is hardwired in each of us that still wants everything to be made right even when substantial progress has been made in our lives and in our relationships. Each of us have this inherent desire to be fixed. We have this inherent desire for others to get their acts together and for the, world, the problems of the world to go away. And I think this inherent desire for things to be made right often drives us in the quest for the ideal, doesn't it? The ideal job, the ideal spouse, the ideal home, the ideal body weight, the idea of ideal vacation, the ideal Instagram account, whatever the case might be. Friends, there's a day coming when all that is not right with us, with those we love, our life situation in this world will be set right once and for all when Jesus returns. The wholeness we intuitively long for and sometimes so desperately pine for will be the norm. As John says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will pass away we as God's people will experience this for ourselves. Together, all of us here 
who profess faith in Jesus and all the saints who have gone before us will go up together and meet our loving and resurrected Lord Jesus. And on that day, we will always be with him. We will find rest. We will find peace that we've always longed for. But until this promised reality, each of us here at Deep Run have an important role to play in one another's lives to remind each other of that one day when we will be with Jesus. I don't know if you guys celebrate Lent here, but Lent is a great opportunity to remind each other of what will occur when Christ returns. The 40 days leading up to the observance of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we have an opportunity to do self-reflection, to grow in repentance and faith because of the work that Jesus has accomplished for us by his death on the cross and through the resurrection from the dead. And we also have an opportunity to practice encouraging one another of what awaits for you and I, for those of us who've been redeemed by Jesus' precious blood when Christ comes again. Who has Jesus put in your path right now to comfort of the good news that Christ will come again? Where might God be inviting you and I to take the posture of waiting alongside this brother or sister for Christ's return. What does that look like? Yesterday, I have a friend who's going through some really hard family situations, struggling with some anxiety. He gave me a call and said, I just, I need to talk to somebody. Honestly, I didn't want to give up my Saturday afternoon. But I just felt like the Spirit was like, you got to go be with him. And we just went on a, a walk And he just shared his heartache. And I prayed for him. And I encouraged him that one day this is all going to be set right. Who's God put in your path to walk alongside, to wait alongside? How might knowing that one day you and this person will be meeting Jesus at his return How might this be a comfort to them as they continue to struggle, as they continue to face the heartache in their lives? I actually just want to give you a moment and just talk to Jesus about that. In the quietness of your heart, and then I'll wrap up our, 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 uh, our sermon here today. Lord, we do ask that you would hear our prayers about these people. Pray that in your name. You know, as we wrap up this morning, you might have heard the saying that he is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. I really do think this passage flips that saying on its head. By nature, I think we can be so earthly-minded, caught up in legitimate pain and struggles and losses we're facing that 
heaven seems to not be that good to us. But this morning, I hope as we walk out of here, we can believe a little bit more that whatever loss or suffering we're facing, we can encourage one another with a hope that Jesus is coming back soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and your love. Thank you that you will return. Thank you that you've given us the spirit. Help us to encourage one another. Amen.